0: Good afternoon, everyone. Again, happy to see so many here. Look like the announcement said uh, maybe they read it. I think it was just 193 or 96. But we do have a whole bunch of people, as you know, at the summer camp. So uh, other people are out as well. So when all the guys get back from summer camp, I'm sure we'll start getting up over 200 again. I'm expecting, frankly, that we'll probably get up to 250 or 60 people uh, you know, just between trumpets and the feast. Maybe after the feast, we'll be heading toward 300. We'll see. But God keeps adding to the church, and we're very grateful for that. Well, welcome to any who are new here. Welcome to all the guests. And please come up and say hello, if you will. Uh, Mr. League, and along with a lot of other people, they, they say, well, you're, you're looking good. And people have never told me so much that I'm looking good until I got to be 81. There must be something about (laughs) it. I think they think we're glad to see you're still here, whatever that means. Anyway, we're up here, not down there. That's that's guys that are old. Every day is special. I want to uh, also mention something that Jim led me into. It just uh, 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 hurts me, one of the two or three greatest hurts of my entire life, frankly, is how so many people that I taught fell away from the truth. And yet I should explain, and I really mean this before God, and most of you older brethren know that, and we have a number of here people here who can testify about that, including Mrs. Apartheid, and I see Dr. Germano, and others who went back to the 50s, there were several people who taught these people that fell away, not just me. The students were taught by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, Dr. Hay, and then soon after Ted Armstrong, after he graduated, he started teaching, and men like Al Pertune and Charles Hunting, and many, many others. So I was not their only Bible teacher at all, but it still hurts because you teach them the truth, and many of the older brethren have told me, "Will you preach and teach just like you always did?" You know, and that's true. I just go right down the line with the Bible. So I taught them the same thing, but it is scary. As I look out at you people, it makes me think how many of you are going to fall away. Think about it just in your where you're sitting right now. How many of you are going to fall away? It's so easy to get off the track, as Jim is explaining in his sermonette. Why people take, you know, you you don't want to have religion and you don't want to be oppressed and you don't want to have too many rules. And they get all these things in their head as though God's way of life oppresses people. It doesn't oppress people at all. That's crazy. But many of them think the Ten Commandments are an oppression. and They don't like that. They don't like to be told what to do. God tells us back in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God, or as Mr. Armstrong used the King James, often hostile toward God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 7. I didn't have to look that up. Of course, that's one of those basic scriptures we all learned many years ago, those of us in the ministry at least. The carnal mind doesn't like to be told what to do. It resents it. It kind of reacts against it. And there's something about that in everyone's carnal mind that makes him not to want to do what God says to do. So we have to constantly guard against that if we are taught, if we're corrected, or whatever it is, we have to be sure that we are doing what God says, even though the messenger may not be perfect or the person who corrects us. When I've been corrected by Mr. Armstrong or many other older ministers who were over me temporarily, no one that I think of, I don't want to say that in a wrong way, but I don't remember any time I was ever corrected perfectly. You know what I mean? They didn't lead in with all this great love and and uh, kind of a mellifluous voice and say, well, we love you and you're doing great. But just one little problem over here. They said, Rod, you better straighten this out. <laughs> you know? And they, oh, my, I'm being straightened out. And people react against that. So you have to get straight in your mind that you are worshiping the God of the Bible. And I'm going back to the basics on these things again and again, but many of you are new. What is our religion? The religion we talk about and the religion my son Jim talked about had better be the religion of the Bible. And I've told all of you many times, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, don't believe me, believe what is written in the pages of your Bible. And please do that. Check up on us. We can prove what we believe forwards, backwards, and sideways in the Bible. And I really mean that. There might be some technical point or something we have wrong or don't understand. I'm sure there's some technical point. You know what I mean? There are these various unusual beasts and creatures back in the book of Zechariah that we don't know everything about. I know Dr. Herman Hay used to be the guru of the church in a sense. He was the greatest intellectual for years. And he mentioned to me about, well, this must have been about 40 or 50 years ago, that the least understood book is the book of Zechariah. And that's true. You read some of those early chapters and you'll see a bunch of kind of spooky stuff. And the book of Revelation is more clear than the book of Zechariah. We understand it overall, but there are things in there we still don't perfectly understand. There'll be little technical points. And so on. So anyway, you know, Raymond McNair used to kind of start off a sermon. He'd say, well, I'm going to give you the exact date for Christ's coming. And then he would uh, have a sermon on prophecy or something. And then at the end, he would give you the date. that The time that Christ's coming is a time that nobody knows. <laughs> and that was the answer. Of course, that's what the Bible says. He's going to come at a time that nobody knows. Of course, God tell us that we're to watch. And he says, you should not be... Upset or thrown off you should know about when it is as God describes in First Thessalonians 5 the first four or five verses there and many other places as you watch you'll know about when it is you're not to be deceived about the times you should know the signs of the times but you won't know the exact date until it occurs so anyway we all need to get our balance we've got to be willing to study and I'm glad Jim said that forcefully to study this book Prove to yourself. Dr. Winnell wrote a very fine booklet on the proof of the Bible. Study that booklet and then study your Bible. This is the inspired revelation from the mind of God. And once you prove that and get that straight, you can begin to prove what is the truth out of this book. Now, that leads me into the sermon. I didn't want to get off the track here too much. But brethren, most of you know, as you read prophecy and as you read, of course, world events today, this world really is coming apart. And as one who's been involved in the work for almost 62 years, because I came to Ambassador 62 years ago next month, it's exciting to see so many of these things have already happened or are happening right now. We have a terrible financial crisis, not only here in the United States, but throughout Europe. And they're often very upset over there realizing that the whole European Union is at stake. And their currency, the euro, is at stake. And in some way, we don't know, as I've said, and it's good to realize this, and I've had to learn this by suffering over the years, we know the big picture. And frankly, God gave us the big picture through Mr. Armstrong, and we're grateful for that. But we don't know all the twists and turns along the way. You know what I mean? We don't know every detail. We do know the big picture. But the indication is that this present European Union will come apart and some will drop out and it will be reorganized in some way. So eventually, as we know, there will be 10 nations or groups of nations, 10 leaders. It doesn't say nations. It says 10 kings, which could be leaders, and they will be the, the main core. There may be others surrounding that. So let's watch that happen as they have a financial crisis, as they fall apart, as the euro perhaps is replaced by local currencies again for a while. Other things like that may start happening, yet that brings us closer to the kingdom of God. So we do need to understand that, but it is very exciting. It's, it's going It's going. in. So many of the prof, uh, uh, news clippings recently have come out showing how Germany is going to get its empire after all. Because they are the ones loaning the majority of the money to these southern Europeans who are getting behind. And so these people in Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal are more and more beholden to the Germans. Because they have the strongest currency in Europe. They have the strongest army in Europe. And they have the strongest political system so far. And they are going to be the leaders. And God says so. No question about that. It's already, the, the groundwork, let's say, is already being laid because these other nations are going to owe much of their strength to the Germans. And remember back in Revelation 17, it says, Ten kings will give their power to the beast. They didn't give their power to Adolf Hitler. Hitler's Panzer Corps, his his tanks and his, his army and his uh, Luftwaffe, his air force, came storming through Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and all these other areas, and especially those First Nations, and then through France and Belgium and Holland. They crushed those people. They didn't give their power. This time, because of the financial situation and other situations, they're going to give their power to this man. Then the man will gradually, you know, he'll have the iron fist inside that velvet glove. He'll look good at first. But all of a sudden they'll realize he's in power and they can't stop it anymore. So we'll be interested to see how that happens. In Britain, brethren, our brethren over there, of course, I spent four years of my adult life there. Two of my children were born there, including Jim. Jim was born right at the college in Brickett Wood. My older daughter, Elizabeth, was born down in London. They are having the worst riots just about in British history. And hundreds of people have been involved, perhaps thousands by now, all across the major cities. And so there have been article after article after article come out. I've got about a file of already 10 or 15 of them. I may write something on that. But at any rate, they're questioning, why can this happen? How can this happen? Because there's not any one simple answer in one sense. It's partly the society and they have the womb-to-tomb society, and they don't uh, work, and they don't have the work ethic. They have all these different ethnic groups coming in, and their multiculturalism is not working over there, and they have all kinds of other problems. But the main underlying problem, when you really understand it, and that is simple, is they, as a people, have turned away from God. Even though it was very limited, they used to have a certain fear of God, and now the British have become anti religious and they're kind of speaking the way my son Sermonette indicated, not in the exact way that article brought out, but they've turned away from God. Well, we're not interested in religion. You go over there you'll just sense that it's very heavy, very pervasive. They hate God. They resent that because their ministers who used to dominate the society, the early Catholics owned much of the best land, and then the Church of England came along. What did they do? They took advantage of the people and they did not teach them God's ways. And so that attitude got over into the school systems. And remember, in early England and in the early part of the United States, when you read about New England and the colonies even down here who often set the standard. For even education, the ministers did. They were the educated people. Those ministers did not teach the society the truth. So therefore, the churches were not teaching the truth. The schools were not teaching the approach to God they should have done. And they began to bring in evolution, which the British properly call evolution. That's the way they pronounce it, evolution, because it is evil, and so on. So they've gotten people totally away from the God of the Bible. In that atmosphere anything can spring up and so now they're fighting they're upset at each other the various ethnic groups are turning against one another they're tearing things up in absolute hooliganism as many have said in these articles even some of the blacks over there and the Browns and the Asians and others they've said not all of them but many have come out with quotes saying it's not that we're starving their social system takes care of them there's no one over there starving basically They have fewer starving people than we do here. It's just that they don't have enough to do and they don't live quite as good as the upper class and they're getting in an atmosphere of anti-authority and we want what we want, we want it now. And Satan is taking advantage of that. They don't know God. What do they need? Obviously, they need the very thing we've got to preach with all of our hearts. Righteous government. They need the government of God and that's the only answer ultimately. So we need to think about that. Why the confusion in the entire world? Because people don't understand the God of the Bible. They don't understand the purpose of their existence at all, and they certainly don't have the government of God. So they have turned aside to false Christianity under the influence of Satan the devil. I wrote an article in the Tomorrow's World magazine a year or two ago, and I preached a sermon here on Protestantism's false paradigm. As you know, the word paradigm means a model. A paradigm means a model, a kind of a structure. In science, they have a certain type of thing that this equals this, and it makes a sort of a a, a model of the way they think things will turn out. It gives you a way to think. The model of Christianity that is presented by the mainstream Christianity of the world, overwhelmingly Catholic and Protestant, is that somehow... All the things that God did through Abraham, the father of the faithful, even though he's called that, they don't think that means anything, apparently. And Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, who is a man after God's own heart and all the rest of them. They, that is to be thought of a sort of Jewish mythology. And they throw that out and they think when Jesus came, we start all over. So when I grew up in mainstream Protestantism and the Methodist Church in Joplin, Missouri, for 19 years of my life, and I was president of my Sunday school class, so I know what it's all about, and my parents were both Methodists and graduated from the Methodist College at Baker University, and my grandmother was superintendent of the whole Methodist Sunday school system for the whole city. There were three or four Methodist churches there, so she was very heavy into Methodism. What did they understand? Very little of anything. They knew there was a God and they talked about the Bible, but they didn't really study it that much and they certainly didn't obey it. Why? Because they're blinded. I'm not against them. They just didn't understand. But Satan has blinded the world and so they come in thinking, well, it all starts with Jesus and as you grow up, You're not given the idea that God had a way of life that he gave to Abraham. And then Moses was enlarging on that and got specific laws and statutes and judgments and expanded that way of life in the statutes. And God tells us back in Ezekiel 36 and 37 that in tomorrow's world, the world will be observing God's statutes. The statutes include the holy days. The statutes include tithing. The statutes include many other things that were to observe. Some of the statutes are changed in the way we observe them. That is, the holy days used to be Passover was a roast lamb and bitter herbs. Today, it's the, not the blood of the lamb, but the blood of Jesus Christ. But the statute is the same. And many of the things like that had been modified, but is still there. They don't understand that. Just They they think the whole thing was thrown out. So we just grow up as a little kid saying, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on. And we get all sentimental at at Christmas time. And it seems nice to a little kid because daddy and mother tell you that Santa Claus is going to come down the chimney. And you get nice presents around the Christmas tree, which my sisters, Patty and Catherine and I all did. It seems happy family time. You know, Grandpa and Grandma and Uncle Paul and Aunt Ethel would come over, and we'd all have a nice family dinner. That's all fine, but brethren, when we learn to observe God's statutes, we'll do that for eight days in the Feast of Tabernacles. We won't do it just for one day at Christmas with the false idea of a of of a, of a little Lord Jesus. And silent night, holy night, and angels and stuff, you know, that has to do with nothing as far as God's plan is concerned. Then at Easter time, and you know the very word Easter comes from the word a pagan goddess of Ishtar, or sometimes pronounced Easter. And that was the pagan goddess of sex and fertility in the springtime. And, of course, eggs, we all come from an egg, an ovum in our mother's womb. And so they use the eggs at this fertility rite in the spring. And so now, as a little Methodist boy, I went out looking for Easter eggs on Easter Sunday morning. What does Easter have to do with God's plan in that way? Nothing. It all came directly out of paganism. So these early Catholic priests and monks and others trying to get more people to come into the church... As many books have explained, and I'm explaining this to those of you who are new, read some of our booklets. Read the book that I wrote. All of you and some of you older brethren, please go back and reread it again on uh the uh Satan's false Christianity. It's a very important thing that you read and understand that. There's another book that is very important, and it's restoring apostolic Christianity. Restoring apostolic Christianity. If you don't have that, go right. For it or get another booklet. They're absolutely free and study that. Top authorities including Gibbons, Rome and many others who are very respected have written about it. They know that. There's not something they don't know that these early so-called Christian leaders thought they would get more people by bringing all the practices and ideas of paganism right into Christianity. And inside was the pagan ideas and practices. But outside they put the stamp Christianity on the outside of the package. But it was not Christianity. So they were presenting a whole false model as though Christianity started with Christ. And then they reinvent Christ, not the Christ of the Bible, who was a Jew, who kept God's Sabbath every week, who kept the Holy Days every year, who went up to the temple and went to the synagogue regularly when you read the Gospels, and I've been through that before with you, so I'll just comment on that. Go back and prove it. You'll see that that's what he was. He wasn't bringing along some strange religion he grabbed out of the sky and saying everything Moses did and everything God did, or most everything, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, and Moses, and the other prophets, Samuel, David, was all done away. He never said that. Rather, he taught and simply magnified the law, as it says back in a prophecy in Isaiah 42:21. If you want to look at that, up, Christ came to magnify the law and make it honorable. So we have to really understand that fact. It's very, very important. We find many comments about how all this has happened. And I'm reading from my booklet. Restoring apostolic Christianity to say bringing all these big booklets in here but if you're taking notes you can look it up on page one and I'm quoting Jesse Lyman Hurlbut's book which I can almost quote because I taught it for so many years in freshman Bible class but he was a mainstream Protestant writer mainstream and everyone will admit that if you get scholars to comment on him he wrote in his book The Story of the Christian Church page 41. For 50 years after St. Paul's life, a curtain hangs over the church through which we strive vainly to look, and when at last it lasted, arises about 120 AD, with the writings of the earliest church fathers, we find a church in many respects very different. Notice that. Very different from that in the days of Peter and Paul. End of quotation. How come 50 years later, the church was very different? Well, because these pagans got in there and took it over. That's why. And other scriptures and other writers certainly uh, bring that out. Will and Ariel Durant, in their booklet on civilization, say the same thing in great detail. And we've had many quotes from their books in our writings. Then Hurlbut writes a little later. Describing the time about right after the early apostles. He said the services of worship increased in splendor but were less spiritual. The forms and ceremonies of paganism gradually crept in. Some of the old heathen feasts became church festivals with change of name and worship. Some of the old heathen feasts. What pray tells he talking about? Well Easter and Christmas and so on. They were brought into the church. This man admits that. And then on page 8. Why, renowned historian Edward Gibbon, you know, he wrote the most famous history of the Roman Empire, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And he wrote, and I quote, the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were all circumcised Jews. Remember, Paul constantly pointed the church toward Jerusalem. He told them in First Thessalonians to, to follow Jerusalem. That was the that was the headquarters church. In Acts fifteen we find all the apostles and elders and leaders went up to Jerusalem for this major church conference. That's where the standard was set. They were all circumcised Jews, and the congregation over which they presided united the law of Moses with the doctrine of Christ. United the law of Moses? You would never hear that in the Methodist Church or Baptist Church or anything else. You know that. But that's what these historians find. The early church did that. They were carrying on the knowledge of the Sabbath, God's annual holy days, and tithing. And many of them had other practices that came right out of the Bible. And they united that with the New Testament ideas and expanding it as Christ did. So anyway, these, these things can be proved in history and in the Bible. So we do need to understand. Remember the basic command Jesus gave. And don't ever forget it. What's one of the first commands of Jesus as it is just written in the New Testament? It's in Matthew 4, verse 4. And again, in Luke's gospel, it's in Luke chapter 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every, not some, but by every word of God. If you don't know the Bible, you can be deceived very easily. Brethren, again, please study this book. Feed on Christ. Drink in of it so you begin to think like Christ thinks. Then you'll understand if you ask God for wisdom. And if you practice humility, you need to practice humility so that you're willing to be taught by God through his true ministers, and not just take our word for granted, check up on us. But if everyone tries to come up with his own idea, that causes confusion quite often, and that's not right either, and that has never worked out. Turn back, if you would, now at this point to Matthew 5. I'm going to turn to Matthew 5, and I want you to follow me in this scripture. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5 and verse 1, we find the beginning of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And seeing the multitudes, Christ went up on a mountain. That's why they call it the Sermon on the Mount. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, not kingdom in heaven, but the kingdom of heaven. The bank of Morgan is not in Mr. Morgan's tummy. It's the kingdom of Morgan or the bank of Morgan. He owns it. He controls it. So blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize their own weakness, those who realize their own nothingness, and they're willing to be taught. Blessed are those who mourn. And again, he's speaking spiritually. Lots of people mourn over in China and Indonesia and Andean and everywhere else. Worshippers of Buddha or any other people. They mourn when someone dies. We're talking about spiritual hurt, deep feelings of 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 anguish over the weakness that we all have. Blessed are the meek. The word meek can also be translated teachable. Who is really teachable? Are you willing to be taught? Each one of you. Are you willing to be taught? For where will they go? Will they go shooting up to heaven? No. For they shall inherit the earth. So do the meek people inherit the earth and the other Christians go up to heaven? You know what I mean? You have to think about that. Of course, that's crazy. We all say on this earth. We're never promised heaven as our ultimate reward. We may go up to heaven temporarily to have the wedding supper, but eventually heaven is coming to the earth, of course, as it describes back in Revelation 21. The heavenly Jerusalem will come down here, and then heaven will literally be on earth at that time. Heaven is where God's throne is. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. we have all got to be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, people that have no axe to grind. They're not trying to wheel and deal and get their own way or whatever it is. For they shall see God. God wants someone who's totally sincere, just wants to do what God says because God says so and because they come to love God, the God of creation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Brethren, if we start keeping God's laws more and doing God's work more powerfully, we will be persecuted. Let's not be afraid of that. He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Yes, you've got to rejoice, Because we will be persecuted if we obey God. Now, some of us get persecuted occasionally or do things that are wrong. In fact, we all do. None of us are free from mistakes. But let's be persecuted for righteousness sake, not for some evil. And God certainly indicates that. Now, back in chapter uh, here, chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Jesus said... In the Sermon on the Mount, this is the basis of Christianity, right from Christ's own mouth. Who ought to know what Christianity is except Jesus Christ? Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill or to fill to the full, which he did by his example. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That can sometimes be misunderstood. It, some people think, well, that's because Christ kept it all. and It means eventually all the world will be keeping it, which they will. But notice verse 19. It's kind of hard to twist verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks, in other words, in the future, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, if you break any one of the commandments of God, including those you might think are least, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Assuming you get there at all, you might get there at the last minute after great repentance. But if you kept on doing that way, you wouldn't be there at all. Other scriptures make that clear. But whoever does, does what? Even the least of the commandments. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we've got to do and teach even the least of God's commandments. And brethren, most of you know that the Sabbath day is God's test commandment. And people often twist that to get out of obeying God and so on. But another part of the meaning of the Sabbath, I won't have time to dwell on that aspect here. As the Sabbath is magnified, you come to know that a number of scriptures indicate that it ties right in with the annual holy days. They're all God's Sabbath. And God's annual holy days picture the plan of God And I talked about the false paradigm of Protestantism. And when you understand God's annual holy days, then you begin to understand the plan of the creator. Then you begin to understand more fully the real message, the overall plan put forth in this book, the Holy Bible. You've got to understand the holy days and the meaning of the holy days. And you've got to keep the holy days because God commands it. The holy days God give, not the pagan days like Christmas and Easter, which look good to the world, but are not what God said at all. So we do need to understand that. You think they're among the least of God's commands? Certainly they're not as important as not killing and not stealing and not committing adultery. But they're nevertheless a vital part of God's plan. And I can tell you, as Mr. Armstrong did too, that any person... Get this, any person or any nation who does not keep God's holy days or any church will not understand God's plan. They'll lose the knowledge of it if they ever had it. The holy days remind us of the plan and purpose of the great God, the true God, the God of the Bible. So let's understand how important that is. Think about the holy days. When you understand it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10... 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, he's talking about the rock of ancient Israel. The one that led Israel all over. You see that term used again and again about the God who led Israel through the Red Sea and through the desert for 40 years and was their God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Write it down. Open your Bible. Look it up. That rock was Christ. Christ was the God of Israel Christ was the rock of Israel he existed then he was the one who gave them the Sabbath Christ is the one who gave them the holy days Christ never gave them Easter Christ never gave them Christmas or any of those pagan days period never ever who ought to know about Christianity except Jesus Christ so we've got to understand that fully We really powerfully need to understand that back in John 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6, Christ is the one who teaches us the truth. I am, he perfectly exemplified Christianity in every part of his life. And when you look through the Gospels, and I don't have time to give you every example, but Christ kept the Sabbath, as it says in Luke 4, verse 16, as his habit was, his custom was to keep the weekly Sabbath. And we'll see in a moment how he also kept the holy days. He's the one who gave the holy days. They are totally Christian, totally Christian, because they were to be kept forever. And the one who gave them was not Moses. The one that gave them was Christ. He's the one that gave them through Moses just like we heard much of the truth through Mr. Armstrong, and I, you hear much of the truth through me and Mr. Ames and Dr. Van and others who preach to you, yes. But we're not the one who gave them. The one who gave them is God. The one who gave them is Jesus Christ, the spokesman for God, the Son of God, our living head. Back in 1 Peter, turn back there if you would to this scripture, 1 Peter. And let's get back there and see it here. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Peter writes, for to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. We should follow Christ's steps who committed no sin. Part of that statement is he not only suffered, but he committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. Christ did set us an example, and he set us an example in every way. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then turn on a little further to 1 John, the first epistle of John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 3. Here John, the aged apostle, riding way up in the 90s, long after everything had been nailed to the cross that supposedly was nailed there, The only thing that was nailed there was Jesus Christ's body and the record of our sins. God's law was never nailed there at all. Bible never says that. But here is John, the beloved apostle, saying this. Chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If you don't keep God's commandments, you don't know God. You can say, are you telling me the Pope doesn't know God? Yes, he does not know God. He's a smart cookie, rat singer, this former, uh, watchdog, as they used to call him, for the earlier Pope, and the president of the head of the Congregation of the Faith, which used to be the Inquisition. Very strong person, very intelligent. He knows about God. He knows about God, but he doesn't know God that is acquainted. Brethren, if you get down on your knees and you study and you pray and you have Christ's Holy Spirit working through you, you then become acquainted with God because you are wrestling with God, so to speak. You're wrestling with yourself. You're overcoming. You feel the power of God in you and you begin to learn what it's like to live a life of God and have God live his life in you. Then you're acquainted with God. Before that, you may know about God, but you don't really know God. Verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep, not just know about, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So you've got to keep the commandments. Walk that way of life to know God. But whoever keeps his word, that's this book, the Bible Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. We're in God and God is in us through his spirit. He who says he abides in him. Do we say we abide in Christ that we're a Christian? Ought himself also so to walk just as he walked. We're to walk with God just as Christ walked, because we're to have Christ living his life in us. And he, he remember the other, you new brethren, write this down if you're new. Hebrews chapter thirteen. Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse eight. It says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all that basic way of life, Christ does not change. He gave the Sabbath back a creation to Adam and Eve. He's the one who made that period of time holy. It says later in Genesis 26, verse 5, that Abraham was blessed, Genesis 26, verse 5, because he kept God's commandments, his statutes, his law. I may not perfectly quote him, but that's what it says. Way back before all these other things were given through Moses, Abraham was obeying God's commandments and his statutes, you see, That's his way of life. That didn't change. That did not change. It was magnified rather than just not committing adultery. Jesus tells us there in Matthew 5, you're not only not to commit adultery, but you're not to look on a woman to lust after her. He magnified it, but he didn't do away with it. He says you're not only not to kill, you're not to hate your brother, because the attitude of hate is murder. He magnified the law. We didn't say, "Go ahead and murder, just so you don't have the wrong attitude. <laughs> you see what I mean boy have people have a hard time working with that, so you're not to murder, but you're certainly not to hate either. you're not to have the spirit of murder. He made the law all the more binding when he magnified the law, so we ought to have that understanding. He who abides in Christ will walk just as he walked, verse seven. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, notice, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning. What would that be, pray tell? Well, you all know. They were all taught God's laws by Christ and the apostles, and that was what was taught in the early Christianity. So he's not saying, I'm going to do away with all these things. He did not. You refer right back to the beginning. And then over in chapter... Uh, uh, two here in verse twenty four first john two twenty four he said therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning from the very beginning of Christianity what were they taught? Jesus said in Matthew nineteen seventeen if you would enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments and begin the names of them. And he also said, as you know, we just read back in Matthew 517, whoever you know, keeps these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called great. And those who teach against them will be cut off from God so that you have to understand it. Abide what you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, that truth of God, original Christianity. Original, not some later stuff from the black-robed monks of the dark ages. That's why we ought to think of it as the dark ages. It was dark indeed. So if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Therefore, they will live in you. And through the Holy Spirit, they can help you keep the Sabbath properly. They can help you keep the holy days properly. They can help you understand the whole plan and purpose of the great Creator. Why you're here, what's it's all about, where you're going and how to get there in a way the world does not understand at all through the plan of God. And the whole Bible reveals the plan, but the Holy Days do in a specific way. Turn back to John chapter 7 now, if you would, brethren. John, the Gospel of John. And uh, I want to go to uh, chapter 7 here. And here we find how Jesus walked no more, or did not walk for a while at least, in Judea, but walked in Galilee. He He was safer up there away from the Jewish religious leaders because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. What was Christ's example? I don't want to read every verse here because we don't have all day. But look it over. Just let your eyes skim and go back and study it. His brothers said, Well, you go up to the feast. And no, he said, I'm not going up yet. You go up. He didn't tell them the feast has been done away. He says, You go up there. And his brothers did go up there. They were not converted yet. But then later, he went up and said, Himself, And uh, he said in verse 6, my time is not yet, but your time is all w- always ready. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up. So then later, verse 10, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly. Part of his reason was he thought if he came at the beginning with all the big gangs, they might try to grab him and kill him. So he came up more or less quietly and got in there before they, they could stop him from being surrounded by the people who loved him once he got to talking. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, the feast of tabernacles, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. Did Jesus ever go up to the pagan temple of Isis or Isis and teach up there? Of course not. He went up to God's temple and taught at God's holy day. On verse 37, Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, no doubt the great, last great day as we look at it and call it, Jesus cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So he kept the feast of tabernacles, setting us an example that we should follow in his steps. Here was God in the flesh. Here is the one who knows about Christianity. This is New Testament Christianity, and that's what Christ did. And so any of you who are new and you older brethren, think about that. Let that be in your mind when you're talking to new people. They'll have, well, you're just talking about these old Jewish feasts. No, we're talking about the feasts of God that Christ affirmed, the early apostles affirmed, and the early Christian church kept for scores of years. Some of them kept it up to two, three, four hundred years before these got basically stamped out through terrible persecution. And God allowed that, of course. Now let's turn back to Zechariah. Here is Christ moving because He is the God of the Old Testament, as I have said, and God's Word reveals that a number of times. Zechariah chapter 14. Here's a prophecy of the end, as we know. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Verse 1. Your spoil will be divided in your midst. I'll gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Brethren, that's going to happen sometime in the next several years. Probably sometime within the next seven to seventeen years, just using round numbers. That will take place. That will happen. The city is already prepared for that because we already have the divided city. We already have about half Jews and half Arabs there. So it's the, the stage is already set for hundreds of years. The Jews weren't even at Jerusalem, as you know. Now they're there. They're back. And they're about half the city. Everything is ready for this to occur. Then the Eternal will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. As other scriptures indicate, Christ is coming right back to the place from which he started up to heaven, the Mount of Olives. Verse 9, the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be king over all the earth. Which Lord? Well, of course, the rest of the Bible shows it's Christ. Turn back to Revelation 11, verse 15. Christ is going to be back as king of kings and Lord of lords. And then verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. He's Jesus Christ having a throne in that beautiful city. It will be made beautiful then. It's not very beautiful now to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it goes on three or four more verses saying if they won't keep the feast, he'll send them no rain. If they still won't keep the feast, someone say, "That's Jewish, then he'll blame plagues upon them, and they'll say, "Well, we better get over our antisemitism. <laughs> we better do what God says. Ooh, that's hard for people. Just do what God says. He says, "Come up, keep my feast." What is this, brethren? This is obviously New Testament Christianity. This is the Christianity of tomorrow's world. This is the Christianity of the whole world's going to observe. It doesn't say they're going up and watch the Jews keep the feast. It says they are going up, every nation, and they are going to keep the feast of tabernacles. New Testament Christianity, the Christianity that we're being prepared for today. Who are we? We, brethren, when you understand it, are pioneers. Each one of you, Mr. Harp is a pioneer. He's apparently learning to play on a harp already. I'm kidding. has <laughs> the name Harp? I, I can't resist picking on people. I go around the office saying bad things all day. Better get over it. Kind of kidding people. But anyway, different ones of you are learning already to be pioneers in the kingdom of God because you're practicing that way of life. We are pioneers coming out of the world to do what the whole world will soon be doing. And we've got to learn to do it now and have a zeal about it. Are we going to be hated or persecuted for that? Yes. So we need to prove it to where we really know it's not just Rod Meredith's idea. It's not just Herbert Armstrong's idea. It is God's command in the Bible. Check up on us. Prove these things. The whole world will soon be doing it. So let's begin to do it with our whole heart and be appreciative of it that we have this tremendous knowledge. Turn back to Acts chapter 2 now if you would. Notice, now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, Acts chapter 2, they were all with one accord in one place. Read it, it's describing the whole early Christian group here. All the apostles and leading members were together, keeping what? Easter, Christmas, No, they're keeping God's festival, the day of Pentecost. And then it describes how the Holy Spirit was poured out, of course, on that day. That's when the church began on one of God's festivals. Then you turn back to Acts chapter 12. I can't have enough markers to mark all this, so I'll take a little more time. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now when the, about the time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Or well, all the early apostles blessed? And if you're a true Christian, you'll never have a problem. No, the church was persecuted. James was killed. Stephen was killed. Most of the leaders were run out of Jerusalem. Many of the churches were scattered all over. Many of the brethren, as we know. But he, they obeyed God. So then Herod proceeded to seize Peter He was going to kill him too. Now, it was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What? Is the book of Acts talking about what the Jews did? No, that's not the context. It's talking about what the church was doing. This occurred to God's church during the Days of Unleavened Bread. So the early Christians were keeping the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. So when he had brought Peter out or put him in prison, he delivered Him to soldiers, intending to bring Him before the people after Passover. After Passover, well, they were keeping, of course, the Passover. And they were keeping the Days of Unleavened Bread, the true church of God. Then you turn to chapter 18. Some of you are familiar with this, but if you're not, turn. All through the book of Acts, it shows God's people keeping God's festivals. Never keeping Christmas. Never keeping Easter. Acts 18. And verse 21, Paul heading back to Jerusalem took leave of these people in this particular area and he, uh, from Ephesus at this point saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. What feasts, pray tell, were kept in Jerusalem? Certainly not Christmas and Easter and the pagan feast. This was a center of Judaism. He was going back there to keep one of God's festivals. Dr. He used to follow as the, De, uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles because of the season just following the, the the record of Paul's crypt but you can't be sure but he was going to keep one of God's feasts then chapter 20 if you turn to Acts chapter 20 and notice here in verse uh, 16 Acts chapter 20 and verse 16 it says here for Paul had dis- decided to sail past Ephesus on this later trip He was not going to go into the city so that he would have not have to spend a lot of time there, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. What? I thought the church started on the day of Pentecost. Yes. Is the day of Pentecost, was that a one-time event? No, they kept the day of Pentecost every year. It comes around every year. So they were going to keep it again, and Paul was going to keep it. Paul was going to keep it, the apostle to the Gentiles. So God's true servants were keeping these days all the way along. You turn back to chapter 27 now, Acts chapter 27, and Paul was on a Roman prison ship. Not a bunch of Jews out there. He wasn't in a synagogue somewhere. A bunch of prisoners on a prison ship back to Rome. And now when this is verse nine, Acts 27, verse nine, now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous, that is in the Mediterranean, they were getting very choppy seas and storms because the feast or the fast, I'm sorry, the fast was already over. Paul says, we're going to have trouble. We're sailing too late in the autumn when the seas are very rough. And even the commentaries acknowledge that the specific uh, 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 the here is used there, meaning not just a fast, but the fast, and right in my Bible, not printed here by me, but by the editors of the Bible, the carnal scholars, they know it says the Day of Atonement. And they put in here Leviticus 16, 29 to 31. Of course, that's what it was. Paul was keeping these specific fast that had been commanded by God on a Roman prison ship out in the Mediterranean Sea. He did not make some excuses and say, well, I'm here in chains and we can't do. No, he fasted anyway. You obviously did. He went right ahead and fasted anyway on the Day of Atonement and shows shortly after that how God rescued them. And every one of them lived and got alive to land and Paul was close to God and the tremendous instrument in helping bring all that about when you read the whole story back in Colossians chapter 2 turn with me at this point to Colossians 2 and here is a very key passage affecting many things but you really need to understand this brethren the world twists this all around so I'm giving it to you you go back and study it and if you can't understand it Then go to Mr. Lee, go to uh Dr. Winnell, to my son Jim and any other elders here, and to Mr. Ames when he comes back and so on, and they can explain it to you. Colossians chapter two, and beginning in uh let's start in verse twenty or verse eight. I'd like to read it all, but begin with verse eight. Beware, Paul writes these Colossians. Remember, they were Gentiles at Colossae. They were not basically Jews at all the way the book is written lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to tradition of men is God's Sabbath according to the tradition of men of course not is God's holy days according to the tradition of men no it did not come from human beings it came from God according to the basic principles or teachings of the world and not according to Christ Christ is the one who gave the holy days Christ is the one who gave the Sabbath for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was the perfect example. He who kept the Sabbath, who who kept the holy days. For in him you are complete, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off all the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. we to have the wicked fattiness around our heart come off and be spiritually circumcised to be clean and pure with God in a spiritual way. Buried with Him, verse 12, in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the work of God who raised Him from the dead. And now you being dead, you Gentiles, it certainly shows that even here, being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. If they had been Jews, he wouldn't be writing that. The Jews basically would have been circumcised. These were Gentiles. So this is talking to Gentiles, but Gentile Christians. He has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You know, you're buried with him in baptism. Romans chapter 6, and you come up with Christ to walk in newness of life through his spirit within you. So he was forgiven you, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, which was against us, contrary to us. Now, a lot of Protestant ministers, most of them, and many Protestant commentaries and others, they have a way, a clever way of twisting this to use, you know, to mean to say, do away with all the clear teachings about the commandments. They say, oh, well, here it is. We found it. Eureka. The verse that shows us we can do away with God's commandments. Does it say that even in the margin, which I didn't put here, I'm glad to show some of you, but the editors put it in, it might be in your margin. This is from the new King James. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements and the literal Greek means note of indebtedness, or they have it here certificate of debt. In other words, when they hung up Christ on the cross, he symbolized our sins and he became a sin for us. And all our sins were put upon him. And so what was wiped out was the record of our sins. The record of our sins was wiped out when Christ was hung on that cross. Our sins were forgiven through the suffering Christ went through in his death on that cross. So then it says, uh, he took it out of the way and nailed it. That record of our sins was nailed to Christ's cross. The Ten Commandments were not nailed to Christ's Cross. The Holy Days were not nailed to Christ's Cross. None of that was nailed to Christ's Cross. The record of our sins was nailed to Christ's Cross. And having disarmed principalities and powers, that is these authorities who who did that to him, he made a triumph, of course, being resurrected from the dead. They thought they got him and here he pops right up again in the resurrection. Therefore let no one judge you. Don't worry about what men say. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or as translations have it, many of them, eating and drinking. Don't let anyone judge you regarding eating and drinking or in regard to a festival or a new moon or the Sabbaths. A festival? He's talking about the annual holy days. Who is he talking about the annual holy days to? A bunch of Jews who had been taught it. No, the Colossian Christians who would only have known about the holy days and been keeping the holy days and wondering how to keep the holy days after they had been converted. They would not have been keeping them otherwise. So he's talking about Colossian Gentile Christians. Don't let any man judge you about how you're to keep the holy days and how you're to eat and drink and so on. But, he says, which are a shadow of things to come, these holy days and new moon and Sabbaths, the holy days picture God's plan. The new moon pictures God's calendar overall. The Sabbath, as you know, the seventh-day Sabbath pictures the seventh thousand year millennium, the, 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 the whole millennium Sabbath that's coming. Christ's reign on earth will be the that Sabbath. They're all part of God's plan. So don't let anyone judge you how you eat and drink on those days, how you observe those days. Don't let some worldly person tell you that which are a shadow of things to come, these days picture those things, but who does judge you? But the body or the substance of Christ. But again, in the margin printed in here by the authorities, and I've looked it up, and Mr. Armstrong's looked it up, and all of us have looked it up. The literal Greek word here is S-O-M-A. Then You can look it up in a commentary and your Greek interlinear. That same word is used back here for... In chapter 1 of this very same book Colossians 1 verse 18 Christ is the head of the body the church the body is the body of Christ the church the body and that word Soma means body so it doesn't mean uh, this other thing it's talking about the body of Christ which is the church so don't let any man judge you but the body of Christ In other words, God's leadership in the church is to explain to us how to keep the Sabbath, how to keep the Holy Days. You are here today at 2 in the afternoon. Why? Well, maybe I made a terrible mistake, Mr. Lee and I and Dr. Nail, and Mr. Ames and everything else, but we asked God about it and this seemed to be the best time to have the service, so we're having it at 2 in the afternoon. The church helps you observe. We don't tell you not to observe God's commandments. We have no authority to do that. But we can tell you how to keep the Sabbath. We can tell you how to eat and drink and and how the, the services ought to be conducted and having, a, you know, a, a potluck in between and various things like that are decided. By whom? By the body of Christ. Christ is putting government in His church. He puts leadership. He puts unity. And the body of Christ, the body of the true church, is to help you know how to keep these days. When you get out in a lot of these little groups that are split off from Mr. Armstrong and split off and re-split from each other's, you'll find all kinds of strange things. Some of them keep Pentecost on Sunday. Some of them keep Pentecost as we do. Some of them keep Pentecost on Monday. Others even have different days. They do all these ideas. It's all split up in confusion unless you have true church of God with faithful ministers who will teach you what God said the best they can. Are they perfect? No. They're not perfect. But God will basically guide His church to teach the truth, which He has always done, and do the work. And He's teaching us unity. He's teaching us to be a team, to work together in love under His government, even in the way we observe the holy days. Don't let any man tell you how to do it, but the body of Christ so that's an important thing to understand that whole passage. And what was nailed to the cross, of course, was not, uh, as I said, God's law, but the record of our sins. Back in First John chapter 2, turn back there if you would again. First John 2, kind of review this principle one more time. And verses 6 and 7, he says here, He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment. God wants us to follow the basic way of life that's always been taught by God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. An old commandment which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning. So we're to understand that. We're to understand that. Back in Exodus chapter 12 now. Turn back there if you would. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. This is Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. And here we find the beginning of the Passover. And again, the true Passover was given before the Ten Commandments were codified and before any sacrifices were ever given. You'll read on through the book of Exodus. You'll find this comes first. Exodus 12, verse 1, it shows how the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, how this month, the first month, was the beginning of months, and they were to take a perfect, unblemished lamb and kill that lamb, and his blood was to be spread on the doorposts and sideposts. And verse 8, they shall eat the flesh of that lamb in that night, and so on. And they weren't to let it remain until the morning. And so then it says, eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover, verse 11 Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you eat. And when I see the blood, the blood of this perfect unblemished lamb, which all scholars recognize, even the pagan ones, deceived <laughs> at least figure this out, it represented Christ. Christ's blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. God forgives our sin. He passes over our sin if we're under the blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we can keep on sinning or sin deliberately. As God warns us about in Hebrews 10, but if we repent as we go along, He cleanses us from all sin, as God explains in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1. So the Passover was given, and then the Holy Days began to be given all through here, and it was given, and these days were given, and started to be given, even before they came to Mount Sinai and the law was codified. Now, the only place you find the entire uh, Holy Days given in detail is in Leviticus 23. Turn there, please. Leviticus chapter 23. All our older members probably know this, but look at it again and be sure that you have this background in mind. If you just look there, you'd say, well, it sounds like Old Testament. Well, it was Old Testament, but it didn't originate there. It originated with God. And he put sacrifices on these days as he did every Sabbath and many other days. So the Lord spoke to Moses, it says, in verse 1. And then it describes how six days shall you work, verse 3. But the seventh day is the Sabbath. We're here. God's seventh day Sabbath, a holy convocation, a commanded assembly, the Sabbath. That's the weekly holy day. But then in verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons, as the King James has it correctly. It's based on the harvest seasons of Palestine, picturing God's harvest, picturing God's plan. Then it says on the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover, picturing Christ's death. On the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. Passover pictures God passing over our sins if we've repented, really repented, and have a profound personal feeling about Christ's shed blood on behalf of our sins. Repent of our sins, which means turn around and go the other way. Don't just be sorry, but profoundly sorry. So you quit it and go the other way. Then Christ passes over your sins. Then next you keep the days of unleavened bread. Leaven is pictured throughout the New Testament as in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, look it up as a type of sin. Leaven spreads through the old dough just as sin spreads through the church or through human beings. A little leaven leavens the whole up. It begins to spread if you don't get rid of it. You're to put sin out of your life. And putting leaven out of your home for seven days is just a type, a reminder to do that, to overcome sin. So first you accept Christ, shed blood. Then you grow in grace and in knowledge through the Holy Spirit, and you come out of sin and put leaven out of your life. Then over in uh, chapter uh, 23 here, verse 11, uh, or verse 10, why he says, uh, then you bring a sheaf of the first fruits uh, to the priest, and he waves it, and it tells you that, of course, counting on the day after the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, you count 50 days. And Pentecost literally means 50th. And then you keep the day of Pentecost. And verse 21, you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. It shall be a statute forever. Now, is God saying, well, just until the Old Testament's over? No. Again, the rest of the Bible shows these things go right on. The church kept right on keeping the day of Pentecost. Not just the first one, but that one that came later. Then there's one I think in 1st Corinthians where they're keeping Pentecost again. This was to be kept forever. Pentecost was called many times the feast of first fruits, and it pictures the time in the early harvest of Palestine where the small harvest was reaped. So God is letting us know, why is the church so small? Cuz God is not trying to save everyone now. He calls a smaller group out, and then he'll call more later. The Feast of First Fruits or Pentecost, count 50. And then it says in verse 34, speak to Israel, chapter 20, verse 24, I mean. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you'll have a Sabbath of rest, a blowing of trumpets. Here we find the Feast of Trumpets described. And through the Bible, trumpets are used as a sign, an alarm of war or a warning. And so when the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets comes, that's the time of world upheaval. It's not the Feast of the Seventh Trump. It includes that, but it's the whole time of upset at the time of the end, a time of war and rumors of war. So that's what comes next in God's plan. What comes next in God's plan? You find that here as you read on in verse 27. On the tenth day of the seventh month shall be a day of atonement. And without taking too much time here, just symbolizing, read it carefully and read the booklet. We send the booklets out absolutely free. So you need to get the booklet on the holy days, God's master plan. The holy days, God study it. But this day of at-one-ment pictures the time when the world becomes at one with God. When? After Christ's coming. After he's been here, finally the world is at one. Why? Because Satan is banished. And on that day, we'll explain that, how this... Certain goat that represented Satan is taken away to a, by a fit man in a wilderness that is not brought back. Satan is put away, put in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Why is the world all confused and upset? Because of Satan the devil. God has allowed the world to be blinded through Satan the devil. He's gonna get rid of the devil. And then boy, it will be much easier at that time to understand the truth. And we can be thankful for our great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and so on. They won't have to put up with Satan the devil like we've had to. So that's the meaning of atonement. The world will be made at one when Satan is put away. And then, verse 34, On the 15th day, you're to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's often called in the Old Testament the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Ingathering. Tabernacles means we're dwelling temporarily in booths. But the word ingathering indicates again the big fall harvest was coming later in the autumn when this feast was to be kept in the seventh month. That's the time God will save the whole world. Boy, will that be wonderful. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, we kind of pre-enact the joy we can have in tomorrow's world Plenty to eat and plenty to wear, brethren, everywhere we live together in joy for eight days during the Feast of Tabernacles, including that eighth day, the great white throne judgment. And so on verse 36, the middle, on the eighth day, you'll have a holy convocation and a sacred assembly. These are the feasts of the eternal, verse 37, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. And of course that great day, the last great day pictures the last part of God's plan. Jesus Christ said back in John 6 and verse 44, you who are new, write it down, look it up. John chapter 6 verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Again, God is not trying to save the world today. He's not trying to do it. He's Almighty. His name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. If he were trying to do it, he would do it. But he's not trying to. So this picture is the time when the whole world will finally have its eyes open. People will be resurrected and a great white throne judgment before God and given a genuine first opportunity, not a second chance, but a chance when the devil is put away, when the scales are taken off of their eyes, and my father and mother and grandparents and your relatives and other people we've known and loved will come up again and be given a genuine opportunity to know God. I'll tell you, brethren, these feasts are wonderful when you realize the magnificent plan of God that they picture. So many Jews have been turned off to God because they said, well, where was God when Hitler's ovens were burning? Where was God during the Holocaust? Others will think, well, where was God when these nice people went down on the Titanic or the Lusitania? And some of you read the stories about sometimes nice men would stay behind and just pray or do something. And they let all the women and children get on the lifeboats. They knew they were going to die. They're pretty sure that's where it was, out in the cold North Atlantic. They just gave their lives for others. Why did they die? Was God giving up on them if this was their only chance? Some of them were smokers and drinkers and cussers and non-church goers. No, that was not their last chance. Most of them didn't know anything about the truth. They will come up again. And they will be given a wonderful opportunity to know the true God like you and I have. Let's appreciate these feasts, brethren. These peace picture the wonderful plan of the great God which makes sense. God's true feasts and God's true plan can make sense. of so many things the world gets upset about and thinks God is unfair because the world does not understand the great white throne judgment. And the world does not understand, of course, so many other things that God's festivals picture. They're tremendous. They're magnificent. So let's keep them. Let's know they come not from human beings. They did not come from Moses. They came from the God who gives you life and breath, the God of creation, the God of the Bible. And if we keep them with our whole heart and learn the lessons that they picture, we will be blessed. We will be blessed forever.